It's great to see you tonight. Appreciate your presence again. And I know probably by this time you're getting maybe a little bit tired, maybe a little bit tired of me. I don't know. But uh, I'm glad you're here tonight. And if you're a visitor at this place, I want you to know that you are a very honored guest. We appreciate the energy and the time that you have taken to be here tonight. A lot of places you could be. And of course, you could even be at home with your feet propped up. But you've chosen to come here either because of an invitation or because you just want to hear something more about the Bible. And I personally, and I know the congregation here, appreciates that very much as well. You know, really, there's nothing more important than we can do than to get together and study God's Word together. You know, we live in a busy life. We are very fast-paced in our culture. Maybe that's one of the reasons I like to go to other places like Africa where things are, you know, slower. In fact, you know, when you go, for example, to Tanzania... Uh, many of you probably years ago, or at least you kids, saw The Lion King, and there was a phrase in that uh, Lion King movie called Akuna Matata, and that just means no worries. Well, that's Swahili for no worries, and that's a phrase you'll hear a lot in Tanzania, and if it doesn't get done today, well, it might get done tomorrow. If not, we'll get it done next week. Well, you know, that's not the way we live in our Western culture. And, of course, we're harried and we're hurried and we're, you know, uh, uh, very tired a lot of the times. But you've chosen tonight to be here and to worship and to sing and, of course, to study God's Word. You know, I want to do something a little different tonight. I want us to look at one of the parables that Jesus taught. You know, Jesus was a masterful storyteller. In fact, many of the things that Jesus had to say... While there are commands and there are other, are, there are other styles of teaching, uh, Jesus did the best, it seems, when he talked about things in parables. Now, what's a parable? Well, before we look at a parable tonight, let me just talk to you a little bit about what it is. A parable is a story. And literally, the word means to lay alongside, like you might lay, for example, a measuring stick along something else in order to kind of get a feel for the size of that thing. Well, a parable is a story that you lay alongside a spiritual truth, and that story, while it is a physical story, illustrates that spiritual truth. And parables are a wonderful tool for teaching. They are a wonderful thing because they're usually easy to remember. They usually have something within them that maybe grabs your attention. They have something within them that usually you're familiar with. And so they're easy to remember and then take away and kind of chew on as you go throughout the next few days. And of course, Jesus understood that. You know, for example, when Jesus came, uh, he came to common people. He came to just uh, working class folks out in the country of Judea and uh, Galilee, of course, where he based his ministry. And so he would use things in their environment so that they could then get a grasp on something that they had never seen. And that is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was inaugurating something that only the prophets had foretold and promised in the future. And now Jesus was bringing about the kingdom. He was bringing about the reign of God to the people. And so he wanted them to understand it. And it was going to take some time for even his apostles to grasp the deeper nuances of what the kingdom or the reign of God was all about. And so he taught stories. He taught, he told stories, he told, uh, you know, illustrations that came from things right around the people of that day. For example, one of the greatest and most famous parables that Jesus teaches is the parable of the sower. 
You know, the sower went out into a field and he cast his seed by hand and some of that seed fell upon good ground and some fell upon not so good ground. And Jesus illustrates, you know, the various types of soils that, that uh, are out there and he compares it to the various types of hearts that people have when they hear the gospel. Sometimes we preach the gospel and there are good, solid hearts, honest hearts that take the word and it's like seed and it grows in their life. Others, of course, just kind of brush it away. So Jesus tells stories, for example, uh, like the story of the parable, uh, of parable of the sower, rather. Well, tonight I want us to look at the parable of the great wedding feast. And this is found in Luke, the 14th chapter, and it's really an incredible story because, in my view, it's almost a funny story. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of a joke or in the sense of, uh, you know, ha-ha funny, but there's an irony that Jesus sort of puts into this story as we see the story unfolding. And just to kind of give you a thumbnail sketch of what the story is all about, it's about a rich man who probably was a king who throws a great dinner party. And he invites several people, all of his friends and probably the village, to his dinner party. And then when the dinner party time arrives, he sends out his servants to bring them in and they begin to make excuses. Now, before we begin to look at this parable in depth, I want us to consider it at least from this angle tonight. You know, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And ultimately, I think he's teaching about himself and him coming to the world. And of course, he came as the master, uh, if you will, of the banquet. The kingdom was being offered and people refused it. And so I think we can apply, of course, that parable certainly to those terms because Jesus was talking to people of his day, especially the religious leaders, who really denied him and they had been given, as it were, the first seats at the great banquet, but they refused to come to the party. But, you know, I want us to think about it more in a personal level tonight because, you know, we tonight, both in the church and if you're not a member of the Lord's body, the same goes for you. We have been extended or given an invitation to literally be with Jesus. We have been given the invitation to, as it were, feast from his great table. You know, the Jews always wanted a feast at the Messianic banquet. They thought it was going to be a physical banquet, by the way. But yet, of course, we know it's a spiritual banquet. But nonetheless, you know, the Jews of Jesus' day and then going all the way back even to the Old Testament wanted this great feast that the Messiah was going to bring where they could sit with the Messiah, the Redeemer, and truly have, you know, one-on-one -on -one relationships with this individual. In fact, probably that's what is being talked about in Psalm 23 where it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You know, the Jews loved to think that when the Messiah came, uh, they were going to be right there eating at the feast, a literal feast, and the Gentiles were going to be sort of looking in the windows wishing they had some of that food. Well, the point is this. Jesus did bring a great feast, and he brought a spiritual feast, and today we have the opportunity to sit at the table of Jesus. Now, I don't mean the Lord's table necessarily as we talk on some Lord's Day morning, although that would be included, but we have the opportunity to enjoy the nourishment that comes from God's word, that comes from the life of Jesus, that comes from having our sins washed away in baptism by his blood that is applied to us at that point. We have all of these blessings. And the way I want us to look at this parable tonight is to think about maybe how much we appreciate that or do not appreciate that. Because sometimes, you know, we have all of these blessings literally at our fingertips 
and yet we make excuses so that we don't have the responsibility of actually being there with Jesus. I think on some level, you know, we want to be with Jesus, but when it comes right down to it, other things perhaps are more important. And, you know, I'm not here to get on the soapbox about anything special tonight, but we all have things that distract us in life. You know, maybe it's our job or maybe it's our family or friends or whatever the case is. You know, we all have things that distract us. And Jesus, of course, demands that he's first. Jesus demands that he's first. Now, there are a lot of really good things that we do in life. But and that's fine, providing we don't forget the best thing. And that is following Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't want anything to be above him. And so everything we do in life, we should think of it in terms of Jesus first. How, would this, how is this going to uh, react or how is this going to affect my relationship with Jesus? In fact, what we'll see tonight is that Jesus, as he tells this parable, he basically breaks it down, these three excuses, into things that still impact our lives today. We're going to see a stuff excuse or a real estate excuse. We're going to see a work excuse. And we're going to see a relationship excuse. Now, you know, everything in our lives typically would fall in one of those categories. We have a lot of stuff sometimes or goods or real estate or whatever it is that keep us, you know, from totally giving our lives to Jesus. Or maybe we have work-related uh, obligations that keep us from giving our lives totally to Jesus. Or we have relationships that keep us from giving our lives totally to Jesus. And so Jesus is going to build off of those three main areas in people's lives. See, Jesus knew people really well. And even the people of his day struggled, no doubt, with those very same areas uh, as they wanted to follow Jesus. You know, sometimes Jesus would talk to people who would say, you know, I am ready to follow you. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he says, Lord, you know, I want to follow you, but, uh, you know, uh, you know what, what do I need to do? And Jesus, you remember that conversation, ultimately says, you know, sell what you have and follow me. And, and the man wouldn't do it. Another man came to Jesus on one occasion and said, Lord, you know, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple, but let me go back and settle up some home affairs first. Let me bury my father, and then I'll come and I'll, I'll give my all to you. And Jesus has that phrase that almost may at times seem a little cold until you realize what he's saying. And he said, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, let the people who aren't interested in me take care of things that don't have anything to do with me. And you come and you totally dedicate your life to me. And so, of course, being, you know, totally, uh, you know, engaged with Jesus is hard. It is difficult. And, of course, for the religious leaders of Jesus' day, even to put it back in the context of that first century, Jesus came and he literally offered the Jewish leaders, uh, you know, everything they could have ever wanted. The Messianic banquet was right there, and yet they refused to accept him. So no matter how we interpret the parable tonight in its original context, we don't ever want to take a passage out of context, but there is an application for us tonight. And that's where I want to go with this. I want us to think about our own relationship with Jesus. I want us to think about our own relationship with God. I want us to think about our own relationship with the church and see if maybe we can improve our relationship by keeping these three areas in a better perspective. Now, the context of Luke 14 is Jesus has been at a wedding feast. He's been there and uh, he's apparently given instruction about what to do when you're at a wedding feast. In other words, don't be greedy to have the best seat. And he goes down through here and gives various, you know, uh, items of decorum and etiquette. 
But then on down in uh, verse 15, he begins to get into this parable of Luke chapter 14. It says, now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, Jesus was often invited to feasts. He was often invited to dinner parties. In fact, right after he called Matthew, Matthew threw a huge dinner party for Jesus. And of course, sometimes that brought down the, uh, you know, the little bit of the criticism on Jesus that, you know, he was some kind of a party person. But Jesus enjoyed good company. He even, enjoyed, he even apparently enjoyed at times those who needed him the most. But nonetheless, Jesus was often at a dinner, we find him in the scriptures. And it almost seems that the people wanted him there because they could quiz him. He was sort of like dinner entertainment. And then, of course, you never knew what Jesus was going to say. He was always going to teach something. And that seems to be the case here. Well, someone blurts out. And obviously, he has this kingdom concept in mind, this bet, uh, banquet, this messianic banquet that they thought was literal. In mind, when he says, blessed is the one who eats bread in the kingdom of God. You see, he had it messed up, but there is an element of truth to that. Well, then Jesus takes that. He takes that kernel of truth and he builds on it. And by the way, while we're not talking about evangelism today in our lesson, you know, that's really what we've got to do as well as Christians. We've got to, uh, you know, grab those little opportunities, those little phrases, those little statements, those little conversations that we have with folks that give us that little door in order to talk to them about our faith. And of course, it's a great way to do that. When they have opened the door, we can enter that door. Well, Jesus has had the door open uh, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is just going to take that opportunity. So then Jesus says, then he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. Now, again, a parable is not going to give us every detail that we would like. There are sometimes details, even in a parable, that are sort of in the backdrop. They're just to set the scene. But I, I imagine when I think about this parable, when it says a great man gave a great supper, I'm thinking he's probably a king. I'm thinking probably, you know, he's a king or at least a great landowner over maybe a, a great uh, part of the uh, country in which he lives. Maybe he lives up on a hill way up there, and maybe he's got a, a mansion, a palace that, you know, the little commoners down here in the little huts look up to, and they have never even imagined that they would ever be up there. And, of course, you know, they have wondered what people in that status live like. You know, we do the same today. Sometimes we like to drive through real expensive neighborhoods, and we just wonder what the other half lives like. You know, do they, do they really have, uh, you know, the same problems that we do? Well, here's a great man, no doubt very respected in the community, no doubt one whom everyone knew, and he's going to throw this incredible great supper, probably a wedding feast is what I'm guessing, because the context of chapter 14 is decorum and a wedding feast. And so he's going to throw this great supper. Now, he's going to do everything to prepare for that supper. You know, think about even when we have weddings today, how much trouble we go to and how much expense. In fact, it's almost gotten ridiculous. It's almost gotten to the point that we can't afford, uh, you know, to do what we are expected to do in our culture. You know, some 30 years ago when I lived in New York, there were, there were clubs, literally, that people would uh, get together and commiserate with one another because uh, they didn't have the money to give their kids some huge wedding because it was expected out there in that Northeastern culture. Well, you know, today we like to have the big show. We like to have the big party. Well, this man had the money to do it. 
And so he's going to have this huge supper. Now, what's he going to do? Well, let's just read back in, thinking of, you know, maybe what we know of other passages and things. You know, when I think of this, I think of Luke 15. You remember when the prodigal son comes home? And, uh, you know, he's been away in a far country for a long time, and the father sees him, and he's so happy, and he puts the, the robe on him, and he puts the, the, the ring on his finger, and he kills the fatted calf. That's probably what's going on here. Now, the fatted calf was, uh, you know, a calf that they kept up just for a special occasion. You know, if some of you have been raised on the farm and maybe uh, you've fed out a beef or a side of beef or a, a, a cow or two, you know what I'm talking about. You, you know, you, you fatten it up and it, it's there and it's going to be the best meat uh, ever. And so you're preparing this calf just for the perfect occasion or maybe it's a sheep or maybe it's a goat back in this period of time. But everything's got to be just perfect. And of course, you're going to send your servants out and they're going to bring in the finest fruits and vegetables for the feast. You're going to have your servants and your staff cook it in just the right way. You know, Abraham, for example, in the Old Testament was a very hospitable man. Remember when those angels appeared to Abraham? And of course, he uh, you know, has his servants kill the, the, uh, the, uh, the sheep and he has them bake special bread. And, you, know, it, you just put on the show. You, put, you bring it all out. Because you want your guests to feel honored. Hospitality was huge in the Oriental culture. And so we can imagine the wealth of this man. He is going to do everything. Everything is going to be just perfect. Now, not only that, but he's going to send out invitations. Now, in the next couple of verses, we're going to find out that he's going to tell people, hey, the supper's ready. But now there's a lot of preparation for this man, no doubt, and even for us, when we have great events. You know, sometimes I go through my mail and I get a lot of, you know, invitations to things. And uh, sometimes you'll get out the little card out of the envelope and it have maybe a young couple's picture on it. And it will say, save the date. You know, that's sort of a pre-invitation. It's sort of one of those things that says, you have been selected to be good enough to get an invitation later. You see, it's not an invitation. Not really. It's a pre-invitation. And then later on, you'll get the invitation where it tells you where they're registered. That way you get to buy a gift. You see, so really the dinner's not free. You get to pay for it in another way. That's okay. We kind of expect that. But anyway, it's a lot of lead up to the actual event. That's the way it was in Jesus' day. They would send out an invitation, maybe one or two. The whole village would know what's going on on the mountain up there in that great house that day. And so it was a day that everyone who even thought they might be invited had cleared on their calendar. They didn't want anything. If you were anybody, you wanted to be there and you did not want your calendar to be cluttered for that day. Well, the day arrives. It's a great day. Everyone is in anticipation of this tremendous feast. Those who, again, were going to be invited are gonna be up there and the little people are gonna be looking on saying, I wish I was one of them. I wish I could sit at that king's table and taste that food and that stuff that he's serving. It would be so good. Well. At supper time, he sends his servant, verse 17, and they say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. They have anticipated this. There have been much work put into it and now it's ready. Now, in the context of Jesus' day, you know, we can think about the Jewish nation. You know, when Jesus came, all things were ready. In fact, John was the final call, if you will, for the Messianic banquet. And, you know, the prophets had come in the Old Testament and said, there's a Messiah coming, you know, and it's going to be a wonderful time when you can, you know, be with the one who can actually save you from your sins. 
And yet when the invitation was finally given, they offered excuses as it were. They rejected him so much so that at the end, he ended up on a cross. But now the invitation goes forth and says, all things are ready. Now I wanna to say to us tonight, all things are still ready. You know, even though Jesus has come and died and risen and ascended 2,000 years ago, the preparation for that feast is still right now. We are right again, available or ready, or, or you know, we have the ability rather to actually sit down at that table. And so as we go through these little excuses, think about your life and I'll think about my life and we'll say, are we taking advantage of what Jesus has offered? Or maybe you've already been baptized. Maybe you're already a member of the Lord's body. You know, we can still end up offering excuses for not getting into a deeper loving relationship with the Lord. And we can use these same excuses. So now the invitation's out. So what happens? Well, in verse 8, uh, it says, or 18, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. Now, you know, I think there's a difference between an excuse and a reason. You know, a reason is something typically that is beyond our control. What we're going to see is that these truly were excuses because these individuals could have made changes in their life that would have allowed them to be there at that great feast. They just chose not to. And I think, you know, God understands reasons, things beyond our control. But I believe that God is very, very intolerant of excuses. Well, what's the excuse? Well, let's notice again the laughability of these excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Now you think, well, that's pretty good. He made an investment and sure, he needs to go see it. Well, hadn't he seen it before he bought it? Hadn't he seen it before he bought it? And apparently not. And you know, if as most parties are, we have evening coming on, why would he go at night and uh, want to look over this land? You know, it's one of those things that's almost laughable. It shows the foolishness of the man who's making the excuse in that he has invested all of this money and, and time into this stuff, into this real estate, when he doesn't even really understand its true value. Now, you know, we do the same today. You know, we invest a lot of money into things that really ultimately have no value. Now, sure, we have real estate, we have stuff in our possession, sure, we have baggage as we carry through life, but the spiritual baggage is really what I'm talking about. You know, sometimes we have things that we uh, love more than Jesus. And because we have things or stuff in our life, we're reticent, we're hesitant to give those things up and follow Jesus and give our all to him. You know, maybe again, it's a job or maybe it's a, you know, it's a house or whatever the case is. And, and we hold on tightly to our stuff. Now, there's nothing wrong with having stuff. We all have stuff, and in every dispensation of time, people have had stuff. But stuff must never come between us and the Lord. You know, I like the philosophy uh, of using our stuff, or at least thinking about our stuff, only in relationship to how we can use it for the Lord. You know, I've known of folks that have stuff, like nice houses, they won't even have anybody over. They won't have a church group over because they might spill something on their carpet. Well, I don't want to be too critical. I don't like to spill things either. But, you know, we need to use our stuff for Jesus. And so it's not that these folks couldn't have had their land, but they needed to put this relationship with this great master first. And so they said, I bought a piece of ground. I, I need to go see it. 
I pray, have me excused. What about the second man? Well, another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Now, this is laughable as well because here we have the work-related excuse. Now, you know, back in that day uh, and in the Old Testament in general, you know, the oxen was sort of like the farm all or the John Deere tractor. It was your means of tilling the soil and getting work done. And of course, it was so important that even the Old Testament, the old law, had various rules about how you take care of your oxen. For example, you couldn't muzzle the ox that was treading out the grain or grinding the grain. You had to allow that ox to reach over and eat a little bit as it worked. God cared for oxen. Also, if the ox was in the ditch, you had the ability or the right to pull it out. Or, you know, maybe uh, the oxen, because they worked so hard, God gave laws, and he did, about how you had to pair oxen with equal oxen. You couldn't pair two different animals together. In other words, God cared about oxen. So nothing wrong with owning oxen. Nothing wrong with owning this all-important necessity for farming. But now notice what he's done. He's bought five yoke of oxen. I would take a yoke being two. So he's bought 10 beasts of, uh, of work here. And then he says, I want to go test them. Why wouldn't you test them before you bought them? Now, again, I guess we could get technical and, and uh, say, well, you know, maybe there's a reason for this. But just on the surface, it seems rather silly. You know, would you go out and buy a, you know, a $60,000 truck and, and not drive it? Would you go out and buy a $200,000 tractor and not drive it first? That seems ludicrous to me. And yet, that seems to be the case here. So I think there's a little humor, a little irony that Jesus sort of fits in. But, you know, again, the issue is putting things first that should go first. You know, it's nothing wrong with having a job. There are necessities. Nothing wrong with having the tools that, that we need to have to, to complete, uh, you know, the task of making a living for our family. But that should never come between us and the Lord. The Lord must come first. And, you know, the invitation of being close to Jesus must always take precedent over the invitation or the temptation, really, to spend more time with things that have no eternal value. Well, what about the third guy? Well, the third one, still another, said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, we could, you know, sort of think about this, and I don't want to read too much into a parable. A parable usually is a story with a major thrust. It doesn't have, you know, something that we just need to overanalyze. But think about this. If this is a wedding feast that's being thrown up there, or if it's just even a big feast in the town, no matter what it is, you know, why would a man marry a wife at this very same time? You know, this party had been advertised forever, for a long time. So why would this man have scheduled his wedding during the time of this party? That would be taking away the glory from the bride. You know, in reality, during a wedding, it's the bride's day. She wants the focus upon her, and rightly so. But here's a man who has apparently entered into some nuptials at some point in time when all this other stuff was going on. And he says, you know, in reality, my relationship with my wife is more important than coming to this great feast. And so, obviously, he is discrediting not only this great man upon the hill, but he's also discrediting his wife. Now, the point is relationship here. And we do that ourselves if we're not careful. Many times, Jesus is calling for us to do things in his service, put him first, read his word, 
dedicate our lives in prayer. You, you fill in the blank. And we are more interested in being with friends or family or have relationships uh, with the world than we are in being with Jesus. And of course, those are excuses. So those same things that plagued the people of Jesus' day plague us as well. Well, the servant has made the rounds now. He has talked to all the folks in question and excuse after excuse after excuse. So he goes back, verse 21. So that servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Now, contextually, there may be some indication here or some uh, application to the Gentiles. You know, Jesus came to the Jewish people. They rejected him. And of course, the gospel was preached, but it didn't go to waste. The gospel was preached, and later the Gentiles really were the ones who really composed the church. And so that may be behind some of this story as well. But the point is, for us today anyway, would be that, you know, sometimes, if I can illustrate it this way, and again, I don't want to stretch the parable too far in the wrong direction, but, you know, sometimes those of us who should appreciate God the most appreciate him the least, and those who we would think would appreciate God the least, end up appreciating God the most. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, many times in the church, you know, maybe we've been raised in the church. Maybe we have uh, grown up with godly parents and grandparents, and maybe, you know, the lineage of being in the church goes way back generations. And so we sort of grow up taking things for granted, and, you know, we really, our faith is our faith, but it's kind of not our faith because it was passed on to us. You know, sometimes we just take it for granted. You know, we don't realize how much of a blessing it is to even come to worship. While in other countries, people are literally risking their lives to even hear the teaching of the word. And so we don't realize it. We just, you know, just kind of, you know, just go through our lives, come to services three times a week or two times a week or maybe some one a week. And we don't realize how much of a blessing and privilege it is to actually have a personal faith in Jesus and be able to be close to him. Now, once in a while, you invite someone to services. Maybe they've got a whole boatload of problems. And maybe, you know, you're able to convert them. And they see the error of their past life and they change. And, you know, sometimes you'll see folks who just blossom. Now, sometimes you don't. There's always this attrition rate. But, you know, folks who I think come in from the world, having lived in sin, sometimes probably appreciate the blessings of the messianic banquet or the church more than maybe we do because they don't take it quite so for granted you know really when you think about it a lot of times too in the church we want people like us you know kind of got everything worked out you know social middle class economically you know sort of savvy uh you know but in jesus day it was the poor that had the gospel preached to them that was a challenge but anyway in this case jesus teaches that this banquet's not going to go to waste. The food's prepared. And so the servant goes out into the most difficult parts of the city, out into the hedges. He brings in the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. You know, we don't understand that today in this culture because we have all these safety nets. But now if you go overseas and you see beggars on the street, you see people without limbs. They literally are starving to death. And it was even worse back in Jesus' day. These are the dregs of society. These are people that normally you don't want to associate with. 
Well, that's who now are invited into this great feast. And the point here is that, you know, God is gracious. God's the one throwing the feast. And no one has stooped lower than God can reach to pick them up. No one is, is so low that God will not take them and make something of them if they're willing to come. And so that's what happens. They begin to call these folks. They come to the feast. Verse 22, the servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded, and still there's room. And then he said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, to come in that my house may be filled. You know, God didn't send Jesus, and Jesus didn't die so that church pews could be empty. He died so that we might spread the gospel. He died so that we might wear the gospel on our sleeves, so to speak. And invite others to enjoy the blessings that we enjoy. But first of all, we've got to appreciate those blessings ourselves. You see, these three men up here that made the excuse, I'm convinced they didn't really appreciate the relationship they could have had with the master. They didn't really appreciate the good things that the master had in store for them. And so they didn't take advantage of it. Well, Jesus then concludes this parable in verse 24. And he says, again, the man speaking that has thrown the feast, he has asked now, just fill up my house with with people who need what I have to offer. And he says, for I say unto you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Now, was Jesus talking to the religious leaders at this point or maybe the Jewish folks who had rejected him? Maybe. And of course, I think that's a possibility that is very good. But nonetheless, there's an application for us. You know, again, sometimes we don't appreciate. And God, you know, God won't force us into his kingdom. He won't pull out the chair for us and make us sit down around his table. It's there, but we have to take the invitation and be willing to accept it. Well, there's so much we could learn from, I think, the parables of Jesus. And, you know, when you boil it all down, the parables of Jesus primarily are about the kingdom. And what that means is the reign of God in our life. Yes, it's about the church. Yes, it's about, you know, Jesus coming to the Jews and then the Gentiles. But, you know, when you talk about the kingdom concept, you don't want to forget that it's about the reign of Jesus in our hearts. You know, Jesus wants to sit on the throne of our hearts. And, you know, that's really what the kingdom is all about. It's really what the church is all about when it's all said and done. And Jesus has provided this great messianic banquet. He's even died so that we might be able to sit at his feet. But we have to be willing to. To accept the invitation. Well, how do we accept that invitation today? Well, the invitation is the gospel. We hear the gospel. We believe what Jesus did for us. We believe that he died for our sins. We believe that he rose again. We believe that he ascended to heaven. We repent then of our sins. We change our lives so that we then begin to live in a different direction than being a sinner. We confess Jesus as the son of God. We make him the Lord of our life. Allegiance to him is really what that's about. And then, of course, we are baptized and have his blood applied to our life, and we are saved through his blood in the waters of baptism. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.